You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey people, how are you doing? My name is Matt Phillips, creator of RunCheckLive.com, and this is episode 172 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast, recorded normally at eight o'clock live every Tuesday on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. But tonight is being recorded on a Wednesday because obviously yesterday, um, everybody, including our guest, was uh, trick-or-treating. Um, and good fun it was as well. So um, some housekeeping first of all. There has been over the last two or three weeks, that sounds like I'm going to do the news now, it's not that dramatic at all. Over the last three weeks, there has been reports of problems with YouTube. Okay, so if you are listening to the live stream on YouTube and it does crash again, then just head over to Facebook, either the Sports Therapy Association open group or the Sports Therapy Association Facebook page where it works fine. Okay, just warning you if it does suddenly cut out. Although having said that, I did manage to record a Run Chat Live podcast episode yesterday about my gait analysis presentations at this year's Therapy Expo, and that kind of went fine. So hopefully, touch wood, YouTube um, and Belive software is working okay now. Also, if you are joining us via the Facebook open group and you want to add comments or questions, so if you're in the group, then you do need to click on the post um, that I put in the comments, which is just where you click on a website, which gives Facebook permission uh, to put up um, your comments on the Belive software as well. If you're looking for that link because you can't see your logo or name, then just look in the comments or what I'll do is I'll bring it up here on the screen as well. If you are looking, um, watching YouTube or the videos, then I will add it to the screen now for you. Um, so anyway, there we go. We are continuing our countdown to Therapy Expo 2023, which is happening at the NEC Birmingham this November 22nd and 23rd. So not long away at all now, like a couple of weeks we're talking. No, three weeks. Yeah, three weeks. Uh, bringing you uh, in these podcast episodes speakers who are going to be presenting in the STA Update Theatre. Um, last week in episode 171, my guest was the fantastic Sonia Fierro. Um, who joined me to discuss her presentation that is going to be happening. Well, she's got quite a lot going on at Therapy Expo, but she's going to be in the STA Update Theatre um, on the Wednesday, so day one, as part of the Women in Sports Therapy panel, which is at 2.30pm, which I totally recommend everybody comes along to. It's just so inspirational to see. There'll be herself, there'll be Anna Maria from last year, there'll also be Michelle Lyons, Women's Physiotherapy, um, and also number four, oh, obviously, Dr. Fiona Higgs is the host of uh, the Women in Sports Therapy podcast. So that's on the Wednesday. And then Sonia Fierro will also be in the ST Update Theatre on the Thursday at 11.30, talking about what she talked about last week, which is functional flexibility, um, which is such a great episode. She's so clued up with flexibility and she's a classic example of not being tempted to jump to one of the black or white sides. As always, kind of, not always, it's a fallacy to believe that the middle is always perfect, but within therapy, because we know so little about how humans work, often that middle area is kind of a place we should be hanging out. Um, as soon as we get too definite either way, then we're probably making a little bit of a, um, assumptions or mistakes. So yeah, great episode with Sonia Fierro. Thank you so much for joining us if you're listening, Sonia, um, especially as you were with your little babs, um, 18 months or something now, I think, um, who was doing their best to to keep you away from me. Um, also, if you do want to follow uh, Sonia, then I'd highly recommend. I think I got her Instagram account wrong when I was speaking because I was just trying to pacify the baby at the same time through the screen. Um, the, the Instagram account is Sonia.RecoverStronger. So that's Sonia, S O N I A, dot RecoverStronger, or one word. Um, I do recommend you check it out. Right then, I did warn my guest tonight. He was going to be down in the lobby uh, for quite a while, but he's got something to do down there, which is fine. So tonight, my guest is Alistair Beverly of theldphysio.com, who's going to be discussing his up-and-coming presentation, Keeping Your Hair On, What You Weren't Taught About Communication. That's going to be happening in the STA Update Theatre Therapy Expo on day two, which is the Thursday at 12.15 p.m., Alistair was on the show back in February. I don't know where that time all went um, with uh, an episode called Healthcare for People with Learning Disabilities, which is what the LD and the LD Physio uh, .com stands for. Massively, hugely insightful uh, episode, which we will touch on as, as we start this episode. Um, but 
rather than me talk about it, we're going to bring up the man himself and we'll link that episode to what he's going to be presenting at Therapy Expo in November. So without further ado, I shall bring up Alistair Beverly of the LDphysio.com. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey Alistair, how are you doing? Hey Mark, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me here. Oh no, absolute pleasure. Thank you for giving up your time, especially as people who are listening to the podcast you can't see, but here is a man who has worked out and just <laughs> oozing those in, endorphins. You can see, I'm not saying you're sitting there hot and sweaty, but you can see you're looking white-eyed. and It's, and... it's smug face, it's post-exercise <laughs> smug face, that's all it is. <laughs> so how's life, man? It's good. I haven't seen you since, well, no, I don't think I've spoken to you, not face-to-face as it were since February so how's things no really good really good um business is is, you know is increasing um I think as as the name of you know the business is getting out there we've managed to take on a therapy assistant um my wife Liz has has quit the rat race and um is a a bit of an expert in this area of field of people with learning disabilities anyway um and so we're just doing the training up on the on the therapy assistant side of things um and she's up and running with her own little caseload now um We've got some new contracts in with a local, um, I say local, it's an hour and a half away, but it's in Rotherham, um, a local further education college for people with learning disabilities, um, providing the physio input there. Um, it's, it's all quite busy at the moment, you know, obviously speaking to you, we've got Therapy Expo coming up, uh, a couple of new physiotherapy students um, working with universities as well. Again, just trying to get the message out there, the same message that we played there in February um, about the needs of people to learn disabilities. So it's busy, but it's enjoyable. I'm also refreshed, extra smug face, because I've just come back from a week on holiday, um, which is a bit of a luxury when you're self-employed, but we, we decided to take a week away in Spain. So um, extra tanned smug face, I think would be the best way to put it tonight, Matt. <laughs> you deserve it. You deserve all the holiday you can get. I did enjoy, was it Was it you who went away or was it... Um... Is it, what's the name of the, is it Friday Confessions or Physio Confessions? Oh, it, yeah. yeah. Martin. Martin. Was it you went to him or he came to you? I can't remember. Oh, with the he, came, he came to me. Yeah, he came to me. You. Um, that was fun following that. That was interesting, yeah. no? <laughs> was it looked like you were just all taking the piss out of each other, but I gather there was some kind of sharing of practice as well. There, there, there was some sharing of practice in amongst the alcohol and, and, the, and the, um, the, the laddish behavior. Um, but no, no, it was really interesting. And you know, Martin does work with people with disabilities. Mm. Um, as well, he's a bit was a bit of a, um, a generic island physiotherapist, as he put it. He now works specifically with children with disabilities, so there's lots of carryover there um, in terms of our work. And Martin brought some really good ideas, some stuff that I'm going to take forward, and and um, and, and you know I might have learned one or two things, but don't don't tell him those things because I don't want his head to swell. Exactly. Needs to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does seem quite uh, cocksure, I think, is the English <laughs> word. <laughs> you might need to look up, but you definitely get a T-shirt with that on. Um, yeah. yeah, so I'm just going to say now, people, because it's definitely, for so many reasons, uh, worth following you. So Twitter, you're at the LD Physio. Easy. Yep. Instagram, it's at underscore the LD Physio underscore, because there's a few LD Physios. I guess if your name's Len Dunstable or something, then that's that, it, isn't it? You're gone. That, so. that might have also been an admin error on my part when I created an account and forgot the password. Um, oh, Instagram, <laughs> Instagram wouldn't let me recover it. <laughs> I know how that feels. Yes, I mean, yes, somebody else stole it before me. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So yeah, Instagram uh, at un- underscore the LD Physio underscore, and then yep. email. I want to say it, private email, but then then there's the website as well, which we'll talk about shortly. But anyway, mm. so yeah, we first met. I had the pleasure of meeting you um, at Therapy Expo a year ago, pretty much. Yeah, so that was, flew by. It? It was, and I think probably if if I say the name of the presentation you're doing there, that probably if you explain that, it'll kind of open up pretty much. You know what back then the message and still is, I imagine, the goal of LD Physio was all about. So it was an incredible presentation about a topic which I think very few people I was talking about and asking people were even aware of. They definitely didn't know it by its name, and Mm -hmm. so it was diagnostic overshadowing Mm -hmm. when the correct diagnosis can kill. So maybe if you could start letting people know what that is all about and then how that ties in with ldphysio.com. Yeah, so diagnostic overshadowing is, you know, it's a clickbait title about when the correct diagnosis can kill, but it's not necessarily too far away from the truth. Diagnostic overshadowing is the concept of when you have somebody who has a specific diagnosis, and in the cases of the people with whom I work, that tends to take the form of a learning or intellectual disability. For reference, those two terms are interchangeable. It just depends what country you're in. 
But diagnostic overshadowing is when you put down all the clinical symptoms that somebody may be presenting with to the fact that they have that disability. Now that might take the form of you see somebody with learned disability who has limited communication, who starts to bang their head against a wall. Um, and they might present to you in clinic and you go, well, they're autistic. They've got a learned disability. That's just what they do. And you don't investigate any further than that because in the surface level, you go, well, they're autistic. Autistic people sometimes do these sorts of things. Crack on. And you might miss, um, you know, tooth decay, severe psychogenic headaches, um, you know, and, and a host of other potentially serious things or even minor things that could be going on there, but that, that could be sorted. Um, and some more examples of one that's a little bit close to heart was my brother, John, where John had a hernia and presented with acute hernia pain Um and it was not treated on four separate occasions. And it presented with all the symptoms of a strangulated hernia. Um, and my brother died from a hernia um, because his pain presentation was put down to the fact that, it, well, he's got Down syndrome. They don't deal with pain very well. So let's just give him pain meds. Whereas if you or I presented to hospital, laid on the floor screaming um, and, you know, with acute vomiting, we would have been probably seen you know, through clinical guidelines much more quickly. But, you know, it was, well, he's worked himself into a bit of a tizz with his pain. Mm. Let's give him some painkillers and let's send him off and then drug him up and then he goes home. And, and, and yeah, um, and then the talk, diagnostic overshadowing that I did last year, I talked about my brother probably for the first time in full. Uh, I've mentioned it on a couple of podcasts. Uh, John did pass away in 2020, I think it was, on my daughter's sixth birthday. Um, and... I knew about advocating for people with learning disabilities. My family knew about what we need to do when somebody goes to hospital. And yet my brother still died from a hernia. And so that's where that talk kind of came from is to say, actually, if we can make healthcare professionals more aware of this as a concept, we can almost check our bias for want of a better phrase in the same way that somebody might come in with pins and needles and you say, okay, maybe that's a yellow flag pathology. Maybe we just need to bear that in mind for future reference. And then anything else that comes up, we'll investigate that a bit further. What I'd like to see is learning disability almost be almost considered like a yellow flag pathology. In so much as if somebody has a learning or intellectual disability or a difficulty communicating their thoughts and wants, then we flag that up in our minds. And then we almost overthink our future clinical um, clinical reasoning, regardless of that. If the person didn't have those things, how would we proceed? Mm -hmm. And how do those things play into the person that's in front of us? Because all too often, and there are a myriad of cases, about 50% of people with learning disabilities who die each year die from preventable healthcare conditions. My brother was one of them. And so introducing this concept of diagnostic overshadowing, which you, Matt, listeners, and almost everybody that I've met hasn't come across, which is fair. That's why people haven't been taught it. Um, is something that is so important that we get across. And one of the things we talk about how things have evolved, if I can move it on, is last year we were looking at, uh, and in February we looked at treating people with learning disabilities. What I want to do now is look at how taking concepts from supporting people with learning disabilities, how can that impact on mainstream healthcare? And in reflection, I thought that diagnostic overshadowing isn't just something that affects people with learning disabilities. It is applicable to elderly care. If you've got somebody who's got dementia and you maybe, you know, Irene in, in B5, bed B5 starts crying out in the night, do we just go, well, she's wailing, she's got dementia? Or do we say, well, maybe something's happened? She might have a spontaneous hip fracture or something like that. You know, we could be missing these things for days, even weeks, because we don't take people's clinical presentation seriously because the overarching diagnosis is the thing that clouds our judgment. And that's diagnostic overshadowing. That's, yeah, that's the, your, your point about comparing that to somebody who maybe is old and you think, oh, they're just old and, and this is amazing. It can happen. I, I was thinking, as you said that, I thought other end of the coin, what about kids? I was thinking, yep. yeah, with kids, kids, sometimes they're in there and I know cases of where they've been kind of like complaining of pain around their feet or they've been sitting there kind of waggling their legs and you're thinking, oh, they're just nervous or they're because we're mm -hmm. their parents and you're missing diagnosis because you're thinking, oh, it's just because they're a kid. They're embarrassed. Yep. They want to get out of here, you know, and it's, yeah, it's great. And that's, I guess that's what the whole, or one of the big ideas of your theme at Therapy Expo this year is 
yeah when when you yeah. let's just read out the title again so people can uh, <laughs> recap and then make the the segue themselves so this year at therapy x we just repeat in case you jumped in late um alistair beverly is going to be talking to us um about keeping your hair on nice metaphor what you weren't taught about communication that's going to be on the uh the day two at 12 15 p.m in the st update theater so yes tell me about that title and that's essentially what you've been talking about yeah how it can yeah yeah completely and that, that's where that's where we're looking to move you know my area is a niche area of practice and one of the challenges is, as we mentioned before we went on air is about you know almost getting people through the door over the threshold of engaging with this sort of topic um because it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy learning disabilities is a niche area that shouldn't necessarily be a niche area my ultimate job role is to do myself out of a job so that i'm not needed as a specialist that's my ultimate you know long-term goal that will never happen but it's fine because people's needs should be met through mainstream healthcare services but how many mainstream healthcare services are geared up to support people with learning disabilities so i started off by trying to change mainstream healthcare services with some success and that's still definitely part of my ultimate goal but to get people through the door because people thought well somebody has a learning disability that's not my area of practice so i don't need to listen to this that then become reinforces the self-fulfilling prophecy that people with learning disabilities have poor healthcare because mainstream or the specialists in that area don't engage with people with learning disabilities. So what we've tried to do this year, what I've tried to really focus on is changing tact a little bit and going, actually, there are a lot of really important messages and lessons and teaching points that mainstream practitioners can take from listening to people who support people with learning and intellectual disabilities. You know, I teach this at university, we run courses on it, um, but really trying to focus on that. So one of the things, you know, we talk about is communication. Um, and I think universities and undergraduate education across healthcare are getting better at communication. We probably had an hour, an hour and a half lecture on it back in, back in the dinosaur days. Um, when I was at university, but I think there needs to be much more emphasis on that across the spectrum and not just made like this is a lecture on communication. We need to embed communication as part of what good healthcare practitioners, what a good healthcare career and training looks like. And when it comes to communication, we talk about open-ended questions. We might be talk, talking about, we're talking about how, how to support people when the going's good you know we're taught you ask a question in a subjective someone gives you an answer how do you interpret that answer how does that affect your thinking how do things move forward this all is great until you come into a situation where either number one the person couldn't understand your question or cannot answer which is almost what some of my patients and people that i support can't do so our communication falls down there or also if you've got somebody who doesn't want to engage or doesn't want to answer or maybe slightly miffed off with the situation that they're in or potential um healthcare services that have been provided to them in the past and so somebody works with people who don't necessarily always and not all of them but always understand what you're doing or why you're doing them i come across people who may be less than willing to engage with physiotherapy services probably more often than most but not all therapists and i think from that there are some interesting points that we can look at when it comes to dealing with people who are upset, um, aggressive, potentially also maybe not necessarily making a lot of sense in their upsetness and how I've dealt with that over the years and how listening and speaking to colleagues and as part of MDTs in the NHS and private sector and, and, and also internationally with Special Olympics, uh, some lessons that we've taken from that. And I'm happy to go into them if you want, Matt. Oh, for sure. No, definitely. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. I mean... <laughs> I'll give you an example of somebody who's not necessarily making the most sense. So this was as an example that came from a podcast that I was listening to, and I thought this was a great example for how to get somebody on board. One of the things with with clinical uh, with communication, I think that we struggle with as practitioners is getting people on board. We, we we don't not necessarily the best at building that clinical rapport, and we know that building a clinical rapport is almost as important as a treatment methodology that you choose to use to gain an outcome, and we know that. The better your rapport with the patient or the person that you're supporting, the increased likelihood of a positive outcome in the long term. Um, and when somebody's shouting at you or not making much sense, it can seem a little bit odd in sort of how do you get that person on board? 
Um, so I'll start off. I'll start off with that side of things. Um, and this this great example was by a psychiatrist who was working in America, and a very eminent psychiatrist. I'll not say his name, but it was on a podcast, and I can't remember the link to that. I apologize. And he said he had this patient who came in for a psychiatric session, and he came in and was banging the table. I'm not going to bang because I'm going to obviously it won't make much sense to people. But yeah, banging the table very hard and go saying. I've just seen John the Baptist. I've just seen the John the Baptist and I went to the church to tell them and they threw me out and it's part of a conspiracy and nobody believes me and nobody wants me to sell the message. John the Baptist had a message for mankind and nobody wants to hear it. And I think that you're going to be part of it as well. And the psychiatrist was like, okay, clearly you've not been taking your medication. And so his first opening question for that was, have you taken your medication? Which then added fuel to the fire of this person's mm-hmm. agitation at that point in time. Um, during this session, this psychiatrist had also had a student across from the UK. Um, and the psychiatrist had tried a few sessions without much luck. And I got to the point of going, well, I don't know what to do. And he sort of put upon the student, he gave the student quite a big promotion. He said, I've got this eminent professor across from the UK. And the student sort of bristled in the corner like, what? I'm a student. I'm just here to observe. This eminent professor from the UK. I wonder what his take on this is. And the student reflects on the point that they were absolutely papping themselves at this point. Um, I had to think very quickly on their feet. And what the student said is, where I'm from in England, I was brought up in quite a religious community. And so if John the Baptist has a message for mankind, I'd like to know what he had to say. And all of a sudden, the person just deflated. All the hot air and steam went out of them, and they were like, somebody is listening to me. Mm-hmm. Somebody is believing me, and somebody wants to hear my story. And so he told this person all about the message that John the Baptist had, and he chatted away to this um, student from the UK for about 45 minutes. At the end of the session, he turns to the psychiatrist, shook his hand. He was like, thank you, doctor. That's the best session I've ever had. And I'll see you next week. I don't forget where I'll take my medication. Thank you very much. And left. And he said, I had to digest this session. I was like, what, 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 what happened there? He had no idea. And it was only through reflection and afterwards, he said, well, what you did actually is you, you didn't become part of the problem. You used joining language. He was saying, I've got a message of you know, for John the Baptist, well, what is that? You know, you're clearly in a situation where you are being told, no, 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 no. And that's a point of agitation for Mm -hmm. you. What is it that you want to say? And in a clinical setting, that's really important because a lot of people, if they are upset, they will be upset for a reason. So there's almost an element of when people are upset with you is weathering the storm and saying, look, you know, I can see that something's bothering you. Would you like to tell me what that is? How can we help you? And, And almost just sitting there and letting people get it off their chest. Um, and then what he did is it was like, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying about John the Baptist. Could you tell me a little bit more? So again, open-ended questions mm-hmm. and then help to frame, frame the narrative of, I believe you. I believe that there is some truth in your experience. He's not saying, I believe that happened, but I, I believe that you believe that. But he wasn't, so it's not a case of being false with it, but he was trying to, again, using words to help get the person on side, that joining language. And and, he's, and the, the psychiatrist, uh, the student also said, I feel that if this happened to you, it must make you feel like, so he used I feel language. Mm-hmm. So he clarified his understanding, used joining language, used I feel statements. I feel that you're saying this and that must be quite stressful for you. And again, all this time, you're putting yourself on the side of the person. And it's okay to say in a clinical setting to say, you know, if somebody's upset or has had a bad experience to say, yeah, that sounds pretty shit. Excuse me. I don't know if swearing's allowed on this. So. Fine, go for it. <laughs> but, you know, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. You must have had a really shit time or, you know, getting that diagnosis or living with that pain must have been terrible. It must have been terrible. Or that it sounds like you didn't have the greatest treatment experience. You know, classically, well, people will come to us and, you know, probably the same in sports therapy and go, my last therapist just gave me some exercises. Mm-hmm. And that was it and sent me away. Whereas actually, that's probably not what happened, but the therapist wasn't very good at clarifying the person's understanding. So I was going, oh, actually, I'm sorry that that happened to you. That must have left you feel quite deflated and not supported. 
And then what we need to do is then put ourselves not be part of the system. Because at that point in time, initially, we are part of the system. And the person is looking for the self-fulfilling prophecy that we will just treat them the same as everybody else. And how we sidestep that is we go, well, I'm here now. I want to work with you. What can I do right now that will help us and help you to get to a better place? And all of a sudden, you flip yourself from being the opposite side of the table and you are then beside the person helping move them forwards. And that can be, you know, even if somebody says something ridiculous, you know, I, I want an ice cream or whatever, you know, <laughs> how can that help? Well, we could joke about that. You know, I'd love an ice cream too. Do you know what? Next time, maybe let's go meet around the shops. So again, you can, you can use that and be flexible. But I don't necessarily think that we're taught to be flexible and think on our feet necessarily. We're taught this rigid subjective, objective assessment, impression, range of movement, see you next week, here's your mm. exercises, off you go. And if we can be better at that and be better, particularly when people are annoyed, then healthcare will be a much nicer place for us because it's not nice when you've got people who are upset and it'll be a lot better outcomes for patients. Definitely. Does that make sense? I've ranted oh, a lot there. Sorry. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. And it should ring bells with people, listeners who have listened, for example. I can hear quite a lot of motivational interviewing in there um, and, and how to basically when you're trying to instigate behavior change you know yeah. before if if, if uh, but i've got so many questions for you it's brilliant my head yeah, is sure. just about to explode but i'm wondering whether i mean like you said we're we're very much still trained well i'm saying we um, particularly in sports massage sports therapy mm-hmm. and probably similar in physiotherapy although i just can't comment on that we're still very much trained like to be the operator aren't we to quote Silvernell and yep. jacobs and that we are the fixer and we believe we've got the recipe we've got the skills mm-hmm. um, in our hands or in the weights that we give the right prescription exercise to fix the person so it sounds like what you're talking about is part to, to appreciate the importance of that one of the hurdles you've got is to realize that what's going to fix this person is actually going to be you facilitating them and giving them the tools and the confidence and the behavior change with them. Um, But it's, and I I wonder whether both can be achieved by, by doing this, by if people understand that communication actually is really important because you've got to get that person, you've got to sit next to them, like you said, rather than just give them orders, Um, hugely important. And also the other thing is business models, because I'm very much conscious of business models as well, particularly in therapy expo this year, because it's still a lot of people are leaving their career. A lot of people can't make ends meet. And I tr- and not in all cases, but I think in a lot of cases, the I will fix you model is just not a very good business model because we because they're not machines. If you want to do that, then great. Become a mechanic. We can fix yep. it, you know, but with people, you can't. And, and what you're saying to me sounds like this is a business model. This is where you are going to make a difference. Not all the time because you can't, you know, some people it's not going to work with. But so I don't know what you want to take away from that. Let's talk about, first of all, fixer versus facilitator. That's this is what you're talking about, isn't it? You've got to work with the person, not on them. Yeah, no, certainly, certainly. And I think, you know, unfortunately, there are still a good number of colleagues out there who like to apply, you know, mechanical metaphors and similes to to supporting people and think that we are fixers. Um, All the evidence says to the contrary. Almost all the evidence says to the, it speaks to the contrary. Um, and the the person's lived experience is almost the biggest point. We know that long-term behavior change is, the, is the, the, the hardest thing for people. We know that adherence to long-term behavior change is the hardest thing. But that th- this is something I think that would help with that, if I'm honest. But, you know, if we don't employ, employ these tactics at the very beginning, then there's going to be no behavior change whatsoever because the person's not going to be listening to you or engaging with you and you'll just become another part of the big machine who hates mm-hmm. them and is part of a conspiracy or is just another crap therapist um i think in terms of you know you mentioned you know about sports therapists you know, given this sort of a model and I, and I think it's not just sports therapy and I, in my experience it's not just physiotherapy i think it's something that's across healthcare and mm-hmm. rehabilitation um this i have all the answers and you don't and in terms of that transition to the business model side of things you know my whole business is built upon people for whom mainstream healthcare services don't work you know everybody that i see is entitled to nhs healthcare every single person there's nobody that isn't Mm -hmm. and yet they come to me and some people have turned down nhs care because of and this isn't because i'm great but it's just saying if you employ these tactics in your healthcare and i work with people who've been let down wronged 
or feel like they've been wronged by mainstream healthcare services and been able to say, oh, Joe, that sounds terrible. That sounds really, really bad. I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Or I'm really sorry that you experienced those things. You know, if you don't think somebody's actually telling the truth, I'm really sorry that that's how you feel. Really sorry that's how you feel. That must be really bad. You know, if that was me, I'd probably feel quite similar to you. What can we do now? What can we do to move forward? How can we make this situation that we're in? We can't change that situation, but how can we move forwards together, excuse me, to make the future for you look better? So yeah, that collaborative model is certainly something that the evidence suggests as well, gains better outcomes long-term and also improves patient relationships. And also when we look at, when we look at complaints, I was listening to a podcast with Joe Turner um, a, few, a few months back and she was dealing with um, she was dealing with the complaints department of a, a big um, therapy rehab center, and she said about eighty five percent of our complaints are because people don't feel like they've been listened to. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like they've been listened to. You know, I came in and the therapist just gave me this. Sh- had this sheet of exercises. They just chucked them to me. They didn't care. They didn't listen. And actually, if you can employ these tactics, you know that that. The amount of time that people will spend on complaints and, and disgruntlement with services will reduce significantly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, does it help from a business model? Well, at the moment, it seems to be doing okay here. Um, it's not the primary reason that we do it, but obviously, you know, people have got to eat. Um, you know, and as somebody who's moved from NHS into private sector and now into private practice on my own, um, it certainly seems to be doing okay. There's plenty of people out there who are unhappy with the state of healthcare services and that's a situation that I think is only getting worse as the NHS and rehab services across the board become more squeezed definitely I remember I can't remember how long ago but I'm sure I was speaking to a GP and they did say that there'd been like this input of empathy classes for GPs and and it might have just been um kind of because uh, I was looking for it but I did notice in the year after that kind of conversation that little things like doctors actually not being on their keyboard and looking at the screen while they talk to you actually mm-hmm. pointing to you or yeah. not even, or not even being opposite you kind of moving a little bit, just that physical to get rid of that physical boundary and not yep. being that typical higher up and lower down sort of thing yep. or choosing their words so carefully, you know, not, you know, kind of allowing they'd obviously been taught about catastrophization, how this can be a real thing. And, and I was, I don't know how to this day, I don't know how, whether it's confirmation bias or whether it actually mm. resulted some kind of good NHS strategy, but it is something which people do need to be taught, isn't it? And, and for a lot of people, it doesn't come naturally at all. It takes a lot of training. Um, and that's something which obviously isn't given on therapy courses at all. It's it, like you say, there might be an hour, but people have to go out and get trained in it. Yeah. 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 They, they certainly do. And it's, um, and it's, 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 it's weird though, because we're dealing with people at, you know, relative low points in their lives as a sports therapist. Um, you're dealing with people who are injured and we know how much athletes are a pain in the ass when they can't train, mm-hmm. um, and how mental health wise that suffers. Um, and therefore people's, um, fuses become shorter. Um, and it just seems a little bit wild that we don't necessarily, impart these skills on people across healthcare services if you work in acute hospitals as a therapist you know you're dealing with people during injuries um i'm dealing with people with learned disabilities managing long-term conditions and neuro rehab services so again people whose lives have been turned upside down it's fine for people to be angry mm-hmm. as long as they're not you know threatening or dangerous to themselves or the environment or other people or you and you uh, feel safe it's, it's sometimes a useful space to let people have a vent. Um, but, you know, our notion at the moment is, you know, people can be upset with the situation. I'm all, you know, I'm all for saying to people, you know, it's fine to be pissed off with the situation. It's fine to be, you know, it sounds crap. I remember saying, saying to one person with MS, um, they'd been diagnosed with MS for two years. And um, they were just telling me about the struggles. And I went, I went, MS is shit, isn't it? And he burst into tears. And that wasn't employed any taxes. I was just like, just sitting, I was like, this is crap, isn't it? You you know, you were, you know, active, working, and now there's so many things that you can't do. I was like, that that must be shit. And he he said, nobody, nobody's ever said that. Nobody's empathized and gone. Mm -hmm. And he was like, and he came up with this tirade of of swear words that I won't necessarily repeat now because HGPC and all that. Um, (laughs) And and, and he he said, I just feel like I, the first person who said, and I feel like you get me. Mm-hmm. because it is shit 
it is mm. very very bad so yeah for for, for uh, professions both you know sports rehabbers and, and physios who are dealing with people at low points in their life it's it is quite surprising to me that we're not necessarily imparted with these skills i think i think our mental health colleagues potentially are so particularly within healthcare colleagues who support people with mental health issues may be imparted with these um but but not the mainstream and again these are these are things that are coming from a niche area that i think could benefit mainstream clinicians they're not infallible though no definitely not <laughs> so i would remind everybody that i had an ipad thrown at me today and i was spat at um by somebody with a learning disability who was expressing their desire for me to leave the room because they didn't want to do any physiotherapy and so i took the message um but, but that was somebody necessarily that we wouldn't be able to engage in a, in a verbal communication mm-hmm. uh, and we're working on their ability to build up tolerance to being with new people it's a new college year for this person so but you know people can still be angry um, and even with these skills um people can still be upset and you know there's no place for us to, to take abuse um and there's, you know so with that situation today i just i left the room because clearly they didn't want me to be there and I didn't want to be have those things thrust upon me today, um, and so we left the situation there. So they're, they're not infallible, but mm-hmm. but I think you know for the, for the vast majority of patients who will be able to understand and respond to your questions and answers, they're really really useful tools. And like you say, there are a lot of techniques there from motivational interviewing, um, but again, how much of that is embedded as part of the curriculum, or is it more of a oh by the way this is a thing. Here's a motivational interview, and here's a thing that you can do. Um, but I, I think we again that was something that was mentioned in our short form thing as an undergraduate. They said, "By the way, motivational inter- interviewing is a thing. Mm. You should give it a try." Rather than okay, let's look at how we support patients who are in distress. How do we support patients who may not be making sense? How do we get genuine behaviour change? How do we get people to envision a future when they're maybe not in pain, or maybe when they have rehab from this situation, or maybe when they've taken that step forward and improved their lives? How do we do that? And this is a tool that we can use. And this is what I want you to try and apply to, excuse me, across clinical settings. So, yeah, it's um, it's good. It's good. And I think, I think you know, the reason I'm here is because I think it's a skill that mainstream clinicians can use in their everyday practice. And it's not the hardest thing in the world to be able to empathize with somebody and say, yeah, that must be terrible. How can I help? It's kind of a fundamental of what we should do. I think some people, I remember um, doing a... Um in my course and it was interesting because the the topic of empathy came up and it was made clear that some people think that to be able to show empathy and empathize you need to have gone through what that person has gone through and i think and they made it clear that's not the case at all you can empathize through the the active listening through the way you communicate with them and it's just showing that person that you are listening that you understand what they're saying is important to them and so on and that's empathy it doesn't mean you have to have suffered i think some therapists maybe kind of think oh my god this person's going to hell I, I i don't know what divorce or bereavement or that sort yeah. of stuff is I, how am i going to help them you know and they think they can't show the empathy whereas really that's not what empathy is about yeah but i'm interested because i think sometimes you can be born maybe with like a i suppose it's a bit of a gift in some cases with this way of communicating that to listening um but other times you do need to be spoon fed it and learn it and do your homework and practice it and do your, you know, that sort of thing. What was it for you? Have you ever done courses or did you find that life or experience, or whatever you were born with it or naturally you pick these things up along the way? So it's, it's going to sound quite cliche now, but so for those of you who don't know, I mentioned my brother who had learning mm-hmm. disabilities um, and, and it seems almost canon that I would have ended up as a learning disability specialist. That wasn't the plan for physiotherapy. My grand plan originally was to be a, a solicitor mm-hmm. uh, in a law firm. And then until I went on a work placement there and decided that that was incredibly boring and involved far too much paperwork. Um, and then so I, did, I chose physiotherapy because it was active. It was helping people. Um, we'd been through a lot of physiotherapy as, as kids with my brother. And with various friends, um, I wanted to be a Man United or Leicester Tigers magic sponge physio. Um, and then I went to university and then I came out of there actually with a real love for amputees and rehab people after, you know, acute injuries. Um, the idea of focusing on, on the ACL for the rest of my career sounds a bit boring. Um, but I know that those people are needed, however boring they are. Sorry to offend people. I know. I'm sorry. All the guests <laughs> I've had talking about telephone. the specialist, like, oh, patellar tendinopathy, really, really interesting. No, 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 that's boring. Boring. Okay, um, remind me to keep you away from a couple of people at Therapy Expert. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
mental note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. I don't want to start any fights. I'm good at dealing with people who are upset. It's okay. We it's can talk true. about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, so so my my childhood and my life was framed around being around people with learning disabilities. Um, and unbeknownst to me, that is potentially you, bless me, whatever you want to say. Uh, I didn't really see it any different from just being life. You know, we went mm-hmm. to parties where there were people with disabilities. We were kids' parties, my brother's kids' parties, my brother's school friends' kids' parties, and there were people with disabilities there, and it just was. Um, I might have used this analogy before, um, so sorry if you've heard it before, but I talk about Christmas traditions. Do you remember, Matt, what, what Christmas traditions were yours when you were a kid at home? What were some that you've now realized actually are not like, ubiquitous christmas christmas traditions across the board oh right okay um so for me i think it was being persuaded at a very young age that um, the reindeer didn't like milk they actually preferred little glasses of whiskey or brandy yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) and when was that when was that illusion shattered for you um i think as i got older and noticed that most evenings, my mum and dad were having the same little glasses of brandy shandies. Yeah, <laughs> fine, yeah. fine. So probably the great example for that one. But I, so I remember we used to um, we used to always have porridge on Christmas morning. Mum would make a big pot of porridge, um, and we one of the parents would sit in the presents and they'd pass the presents out. I grew up in a family of five. It was quite a busy household with dogs, budgery guards, and the whole the whole shebang. Um, and it was only when I went to my first friend's house for Christmas, probably about age 18 or something. And I was like, you do what in a morning? Bugs fizz? And they were like, yeah, bugs fizz. I was like, where's the porridge? You know, all these things that i taken as part of almost as sacrosanct as having a Christmas tree is, mm-hmm. you know, the nativity. It was almost these things. These things are Christmas. What, what on earth are you doing? you're you're completely ridiculous and then it's only at that point when you realize actually your experience is not the same as everyone else's and it's only when i got into adulthood and maybe that i realized that you know growing up around and being around people with disabilities was different because as kids we just accept things as the way they are things are presented to us and that's how things are and so you know growing up with people with disabilities and going to parties and having friends who were disabled people was just normal um and I think that's probably one of the, the proudest points of my, my growing up is it was just normal. But I think what that gave me is a particular skill set around being able to communicate with a wide variety of people mm-hmm. um, and understanding how people communicate and being able to adapt to my communication style to the needs of that person who's in front of me, whether that's about body language, tone of voice, um, the complexity of language that I choose to use, um, and so, you know, I probably do have, that has probably given me more of a a skill set that I hadn't realized at the time and certainly probably wouldn't have been useful had I made it to Manchester United and been the <laughs> first team <laughs> physiotherapist. Um, those skills may not have been quite so well utilized as they are in this job. Um, so, yes, I think I probably, and to, to bring it right back round after a long segue, is that I think that it's, it's been part of my upbringing that's helped me to realize these things. And then through clinical practice and 13 years of practice in many different areas, including sports, um, have led me to sort of realize and reflect that actually, you know, there are things that are useful and that mainstream clinicians, when we look at how clinical practice is going, can learn from. Um, And that's kind of where we're at. So that was kind of nice life reflection there from me. Sorry Wonderful. about that. Yeah, Christmas Yeah, I've never heard Christmas of that one porridge. before. Weirdo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you don't realize. <laughs> well, and if I've just had porridge for those who don't know, but before coming on air, so, you know. I wasn't going to mention that. No, yeah, no. so, but it's interesting, yeah, because some people do think, oh, you know, people like like that, Alistair Beverly, he's grown, grown up with all of that, so naturally he's like that. But I do, I have experienced firsthand and seen online as well on on in my course that we did with um, Dr. Gary Mendoza, who sadly he's uh, retiring mm. uh, at the end of this year, but just little things that I remember, which just amazed people because working in pairs and seeing how you feel when somebody changes something. One of the things, for example, was um, the intonation, the difference between going up at the end 
and going down yeah. at the end, which I think is quite a classic kind of technique to change something from a question, which is going to demand yeah. kind of an answer to going down at the end, which is more of a reflection and encourages the person just to keep talking rather than thinking, oh, I've got to answer. And just doing this. And, and even though we knew what was going on when we did this in pair work, you just felt even though you knew it was just role play, you f your whole body felt different when the person went down at the end of the, instead of going up all the time, you know, yeah. and, and even though you knew they were purposely kind of doing one of the many different kinds of reflection and, and, and cleverly interwining these different varieties there, it still had the effect because we're human. And the beautiful thing is we do react in, in similar ways. So to, to depending on what words are used and that. So I just, it's, it's, it's something which can be learned. It needs to be practiced because otherwise it just goes away. Mm. But for people who are listening, it is something you can do and it makes a hell of a difference. Yeah, there are, difference, there are a whole host of, of little subtle tricks um, mm. that not tricks, not tricks, tools, we'll call them tools that you can yeah. use to help people reflect, you know, and, and one of them, the easiest ones to remember I, I find is tell me more about that. Mm. So like, there's, there's quite a few that are quite difficult to remember about tone of voice. And sometimes your natural, mm. I, speak too quickly i know that and i need to work on slowing that down because that gives my words more gravity brilliant but i my my mind runs away with my mouth quite regularly and i speak quite passionately about the things that i'm interested in and mm -hmm. um and therefore it runs away and sometimes i know that i that loses the importance of the things that we're saying um but those things are hard to remember you know particularly like i said if your if your natural speech tone doesn't always end in a in a down like bristolian mm. people they tend to end up at anything at the end like it's a question in it my dad's from that area of the world so that's not offensive you're allowed to do thing. that yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um i'm claiming that anyway um but but the easiest ones remember is tell me more about that mm. and it, it because because you could have somebody could have been waffling in a, in a subjective and you might have been thinking about your clinical reason you might have been worried about something else that they've said earlier on that you're thinking like, what's my next question I need to ask and you need a bit more time. Tell me more about that. Or if you've also missed what they've just said and you think, Oh, I've missed something really important. Just tell me more about that. That's a really, really useful tool that you can use. Mm -hmm. The other nice. thing is repeating the last few words that the person said mm -hmm. without, is it another way of saying, tell me more about that. It's a natural way that will get somebody to continue to speak a little bit more. Um, and I think uh, I was listening to, um who was it? it was rob cairo rob um, oh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he said yeah, yeah. he said yeah he said he uses it quite a lot and he says he uses it yes he uses it with his wife as well and um you know he said if i'm not paying attention i'll just repeat back the last few words of what they said and, and people just carry on people well, just carry listens on to this now oh, well, i did say how many yeah. downloaders we've got he just ruined his marriage <laughs> sorry yeah, yeah yeah no he said it on his own podcast first so i feel like right. no, okay we're just amplifying his message that he's a bad husband don't we that's <laughs> Uh, Rob Evan, sorry about that. You uh, did warn me about. <laughs> love you, Rob. Again. Love you, Rob. That's yeah. <laughs> no, true. It's, it's it's excellent. And and the pause, of course, just the and that feels really alien sometimes, yeah. where you just don't talk, you know. And even just put your hands over your mouth because you want to solve it, don't you? You want to give them the answer. You want to unleash all these solutions you've got to their problem. Um, and uh, and you mustn't. You got to kind of just look at them. And and then I love the idea. And again, this is kind of stuff which I really appreciated where. The first time someone talks, the first sentence or two is maybe telling you what, you know, they think you want to hear and that. But every time you pause and then they start, you start peeling off the layers. And then eventually the next thing they say is a little bit more from their memory or a little bit more truthful. And then the deeper you get, the more they're actually telling you stuff, which they're not just presenting it to you like here's the first layer. It's you get to know, you know listen to them enough and, and they'll tell you how to fix some kind of stuff and you know, listen some more and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, amazing. We haven't given away too much about what you're going to be doing in the presentation of the SGA Theatre. I'm worried here that you're, you've already handed out all of your kind of tools now. You've got some stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, damn it. I'm, you're, not going to, you're not going to need me anymore now, are you? Well, it'll be interesting because it is an open air. Well, obviously, you know what it's like, but it's yeah. it's an open air theatre, which means that you can get as interactive as you want with people. And, and um, they'll all be sitting around you in a horseshoe, kind of looking up at you, mm. the guru that you are. So it, it's a really nice opportunity. I mean, the other big theatres are great as well, which you know, like last year in one of the big yeah. theatres, 120 people. But I think with sometimes with things like this, well, <laughs> to teach communication, hey, let's get people communicating. It's quite a good way to learn it, isn't it, yourself? Yeah. So, yeah. so that'll be interesting. No, exactly. 
No, I think it's really useful to get some interactive element and hopefully that's something that will, well, it is something that I want to be part of, of the talk. Obviously, it's a, it's a small time frame, so it's trying to keep things succinct and maybe trying to punch at the take-home messages. Um, but yeah, practice practice is certainly important. And I think that's a really big point um, just to help people to understand the impact of it. And like you say, you know, when you practice it yourself, it, even even knowing that you're practicing it, it can have quite a profound effect on how mm. you feel in that situation. Definitely. It's interesting. I wonder whether, because we started off saying like you're in a very kind of niche population and, and you've tried kind of changing that by the NHS and has some success, but I wonder by teaching therapists about the parallels and how you can take some of the, these techniques aren't just for this population. They actually work for your population too. Then actually therapists will twig that, hold on, maybe these people who he works with, who I thought were just like another world of people who are nothing that's similar to my clients are actually very similar and we're using the same technique. So do you think there's a kind of reverse thing where it will raise awareness and get, you know, kind of break down that wall of the smiley down syndrome boy who's such an angel and like, you know, walks down the street and everyone goes, oh, isn't he lovely? You know, they're very <laughs> friendly. They love hugging. They love hugging these people, which I know you hate. Oh, you know? Will it help get rid of some of those kind of stereotypes, which is what, you know, really holds, you you know, things back in terms of understanding people's learning or intellectual disabilities? Yeah, no, I, I certainly think it will. Um, and, you know, we need to remember that people with intellectual disabilities make up 3% of the population. It's about 1.4 to 1.5 million people in the UK. And people with learning disabilities get back pain. People with learning disabilities play sport. People with learning disabilities have Achilles tendons. They have femoral tendinopathy if we're going to plug that one again tick it off <laughs> they'll have you know um bucket handle tears and meniscus particularly people with down syndrome who are more prone to being hypermobile if anything we see an increased frequency of those but why aren't the specialists in bucket handle meniscus tears seeing these people why do they come to me and actually you know I, my mantra is point. that you know when, when you pass them to me you're passing them to a lower standard of healthcare. Because I'm not the specialist in that. I'm a bit of a you know a specialist generalist, um, and we we do need myth busting. There was a, a report that's just been released um, by Dimensions, Di- Dimensions, sorry, not Dimensions, Dimensions, who are a UK charity supporting people with learning and intellectual disabilities on um, attitudes, societal attitudes towards people with learning disabilities, and hate crime is up 25% in the last two years. So hate crime has risen by a quarter. Um, 6% of the people that they surveyed, and they surveyed 2,000 people, said that they had committed physical violence towards somebody with a learning disability. Um, And that their learning disability was the sole reason they committed violence. People under 35, um, a significant proportion have said that they had you know, laughed or engaged in online trolling or, or, or found videos where people with disabilities were being poked fun at. They found them funny. Um, and, you know, there's a fine line between what is somebody with learning disability being funny and somebody with learning disability being made fun of. Mm-hmm. There are some great creators out there who make some fantastic content for the purposes of being funny and performing. Um, if you look for some, there's a couple called the Brother Bees, who are some Australian lads. Um, they're two brothers, um, and they are hilarious. Um, there's a, an Irish comedian called Fionathan. Um, Search these people up. They are very funny, and they are there for the purposes of comedy and being funny. But when people are poked for that, that's a very different thing. So I was reading this report that came out from the, the research. It was, it was published in the Huffington, Huffington Post, a bit of a summary. Um, and... You know, uh, the, this is on top of a MenCat report that said that nine out of 10 people with learning disabilities have been victims of hate crime in the past. And those rates continue to rise. So we we need some myth busting. We need to realize that, you know, not everyone with Down syndrome is going to be smiling. Somebody um, might be a powerlifter and might take your head off. My mm. brother, strong as an ox. Um, and I always say that people with learning disabilities have the right to be a dick. That was my brother had the right to be a dick. Mm. And he was a dick sometimes because he's your brother. Um, so, you know, we need to dispel these myths that, you know, people are all angels sent from heaven. You know, it's, it's, it's nonsense. People are people, people have healthcare needs and those healthcare needs should be met by the best people, the experts in those areas. And if those experts need a bit of help to support that person, then we're happy to do that. But, 
they should be seen by the experts. And if not, then actually you're accepting that they deserve a lower standard of healthcare. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that learned disability is written as cause of death on a lot of people's um, death certificates. Um, and that's that demonstrates a lack of poor understanding about what a learned disability is because a learned disability is a difficulty taking on new information. People don't die from that. Mm -hmm. People die from poor healthcare that's associated with attitudes towards people who have those conditions. And, you know, we can't be so sanctimonious to think that we as healthcare practitioners are not represented within those 2000 people that were surveyed in that. We can't think that, you know, there won't be a proportion of people who will have engaged in those things online. Um, we're not better. We are a population and we are, we are the public. So, mm. you know, the coming full circle right back to the diagnostic overshadowing, if we can make ourselves more aware of our own biases, then we can look to treat people better and provide people with better healthcare. Amazing. Great. Well, look, time is there. I'm definitely, it's, 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 it's going to be really interesting that people now can draw that parallel between the work you do and, and how, what you have to do can help so much when working with, I don't like saying normal population, the more common population. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, because, because there are so many parallels and that's because the people you work with are people as well. You know, they get angry and, and they can be, um, helped in the same way so some amazing parallels there which hopefully listeners will understand and take on and if you have been listening and you are going to uh the nec birmingham in november on the 22nd and 3rd then my guest tonight alistair beverly ldphysio.com is going to be on day two so the thursday in the sta update theater um, at 12 15 p.m um and if you do want to um follow alistair before then find some more out i'm gonna just bring up your website because there's so much information on there so mm. let me just put that on the screen so the ldphysio.com very easy to remember if you go there there's a wealth of information and i would encourage you to read the blog if anything just because the talent this guy's got in writing obviously that this subject matter is so important and valid but the humor that you use and i've said this to you before in the last one is it's so engaging it's so readable and and like we said before, there are stories of John, your brother and you growing up. And it's, some of it is literally it's, it's so beautifully written, so humorous. It, but it really gets the point across that, that people with learning disabilities, yes, they have learning or intellectual disabilities, but they're people as well. And they mm -hmm. can get depression. They can get angry. They, if anything, well, we know they do have more tendency towards getting mental health problems yep. because of the, the, the worlds they have to live in. And unfortunately, because of us a lot of the time, because yep. of us smiling at them and just nodding and then ignoring them. Yep. Um, so it's, it'll be a real education experience, people, if you go to that, the ldphysio.com and then also, um, follow Alistair on, uh, social media as well. Loads of content. I don't know how he manages to do it. Um, but if you follow on either Twitter at the LD Physio, Instagram at underscore the LD Physio underscore, um, uh, then yes, you will learn a lot and it'll be a very pleasant, as he, as he preaches, a fun way of learning, which is the best way to learn. So there we go. Right. Thank you so much, Alistair, for your time once again. Thank and you. It's been great. Really informative. Really looking forward to catching up with you in like less than three weeks now, mate. Amazing. I know, can't wait. Can't wait. Yes. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you very much for listening. And um, yeah, have a nice evening. Thank you very much. If you can hang around, I'm just going to shut down the live lounge. Um, people, if you have been joining us live, then thank you very much. No questions tonight, but I guess um, that was because you were listening and just jaw dropped and <laughs> taking notes down. Um, if you do listen to the podcast um, or to the many people who do download the podcast, then thank you very much. If you could just leave a rating or a review, as long as it's good, obviously, don't bother if you didn't like it. <laughs> if you did like it, then rather than just giving us a kind of like a, you know, a metaphorical pat on the back, actually do something useful, which is chucking down five stars and a comment because that just helps the podcast appear higher up so if someone does put in learning disability then bam in google it will be our guest here alistair talking about it with such wisdom so do please um don't think everyone else does it because they don't we've got about i don't know five thousand people in the sports therapy association and we've only got about 30 likes so something's gone wrong there the math is not working so please do that if you want to join us next week then that's great we'll be back on the tuesday 
which is the 7th of November. And in next week's episode, which um, will be 173, then myself, Gary Benson, and special guest Andy Hosgood of Elevate Your Clinic are going to be having a whole hour devoted to how to make sure Therapy Expert helps your business. Okay, we know that there are some exceptional speakers like Alistair um, coming along in November. You will be sport for choice. There will be too much for you to absorb and we don't want you running around um, getting stressed out and not taking any information in. So we're going to try and give you some tips of how to make sure that you don't just wake up on Monday thinking, what happened there? Two days and I haven't can't remember a thing. And then and you just go back to doing what you did before because that's a waste of your money and it's and it's it's not going to help your clients. So we'll be devoting the hour to that. So if you'd like to join us, then just go along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. Um, or we'll also put it out on Facebook as well, depending on which you prefer to watch. So once again, thank you to my guest, Alistair Beverly, and thank you to everyone else. Take care of each other. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.